Group Chat is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you could dream it, you could probably bet through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under, props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. And there are more ways to fund your account. Unlike other sportsbooks, FanDuel accepts most major payment options, and there are more ways to cash out. When you win, you could receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through safe and secure process. Check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. 21 plus and present in Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Basketball is very good. Hello and welcome to Group Chat, the Ringer's weekly NBA group discussion show where we talk about everything from air punches to go bear coming up short. I am Justin Barrier and joining me today, Jonathan Charks. What's up, guys? Rob Mahoney. Hello. And our special guest from The Athletic, from 60 other podcasts that you listen to about the NBA, Uh, Big Wads. What's up, my friend? What's up? What's going on, fellas? It's an honor to be here, man. It was like getting the major league caller. I'm finally finally potting with Jarks and Mahoney. Obviously, I used to pot with Varia all the time, so who cares? But True. That's what I had to have for sure. (laughs) The honor is all of ours. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. We got TD, Sasha is usually here with us, so we had to annex someone else from The Athletic, pretty much. I love it. Um, So today we're going to talk about a few things. Uh, We're going to get into a story Charks wrote about, uh, about series wins and and some star players and how they rank there as opposed to rings. Uh, That's in the back half. We're going to get into the Celtics and Raptors game. But first, let's talk about that game seven. Uh, The Nuggets obviously won 80 to 78. So after six shootouts, kind of like watching two turtles race, where it's like you're watching and they're slow inching by, and it's like one is Jokic is running backwards, and you're like, what are we doing here? And then ultimately it came down to the wire. My Conley shot went out. But Waz, let's start here. Was this a good game? And was it a good outcome for the Nuggets? Like, do you feel good about either <laughs> the game itself or the outcome? I think it was a good game in the sense that it provided drama, right? It's It was like a pitcher's duel, if you will, the NBA's version of that. Um, buckets were hard to come by, especially when you consider the mastery that we witnessed offensively for the better part of the series, right? Um, it, it, it was just incredible shot making, incredible offense. But game sevens are usually like this. It's usually a slugfest knock them out, drag them down. Possessions are usually lower. Buckets are harder to come by. So in that sense, it was a typical game seven. And more importantly, it delivered drama. Uh, Now, for your other question, should the Nuggets be encouraged by this? If by encouraged, should they think they could beat the Clippers? Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to me in this game, it just really seemed like we finally saw not having Bogdanovich for Utah. Because without him out there, it's pretty much just Mitchell's your only bucket getter. Like the rest of those guys, 
I mean, Gobert with your second leading scorer, Conley, Ingles, O'Neal, none of those guys can just get you a basket. So it's just Mitchell and I guess kind of Clarkson, which is just not enough in a game seven. Well, and that was the thing too, is you know, once Gary Harris showed up in this series, Jordan Clarkson's whole life kind of changed a little bit. And you know, he had some he had some great defense on Donovan Mitchell too in some key spots. Like the Nuggets aren't looking great right now, but they needed just a little bit more. And Harris was able to give them at least a touch of that. Yeah, it was funny how as soon as the Nuggets got just like a fifth good player, everything just flipped on its head. Uh, Harris obviously had that big bald nile late. Pretty much just completed everything that the Nuggets were doing here. I want to get into Mitchell and Murray a little bit, but first I want to talk about the guys around them because even though the shootout was kind of how this game was sold and pretty much the story of the first couple of games, at a certain point this game did come down to Gobert and Jokic. And then ultimately Jokic comes through in the back end with that 720 pirouette, whatever the hell that was in order to win the game. Was what do you think of Jokic in this one? Because there were times where he kind of floated in and out and he didn't have a particularly good game, but ultimately he gets the bucket at the end and the stats show that he played well. Yeah, and realistically, the way the defense went for them all series long, uh, you can't you can't complain with the outcome of game seven. They played a lot of it, of course, if you're a jazz fan, you're having flashbacks, nightmares. Groundhog's Day, deja vu, whatever metaphor you want to use of just missing big open buckets in a big playoff game. A lot of it is that, but he played sound defense, right? Like he played about as good a defense as can reasonably be asked of him. And even better than that, when Gobert had to sit with the files in the first half, he was just absolutely feasting, maybe not necessarily scoring, but they were sending hard doubles at him. And we know that's kryptonite for any defense against Jokic because he's going to find the open guy. And I thought he did that effectively. He played justifiable defense while giving you effective offense, which is, you know, customary for him. Uh, now, if you're the Jazz, it's kind of frustrating. You're Rudy Gobert. I think in the second half, I saw the stats somewhere. I can't remember. They were held, Denver was, to a 71 offensive rating. That's bad. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not good, right? Um, and you can hang your hat on that if you're Rudy Gobert. It's just they just couldn't scratch out enough shot making to win the game. But yeah, Jokic, he made the big shot at the end. I think people might not necessarily consider him this way, but he's one of the most potent offensive clutch weapons in the NBA, period. Like, he's either going to score on his guy or he's going to find the open man if you force him to pass it. Um, so, yeah, I think he could be proud of the game that he played in Game 7. Yeah, I, I just thought it was interesting because so much of this matchup was about Murray. It was about Mitchell. And ultimately, it came down to that. But we're talking about unicorns these days. Mm. The ADs, the Giannis's, Jokic, and, and, and a few other guys. It's just funny how everything ultimately just matriculates back to those wings. And it seems like in this one too, it, like the, the entire game, the entire series was dictated by those guys. And I do wonder how much you could rely on someone in like Jokic to win a playoff series. He, like it, it almost feels like, I guess what I'm trying to say is he needs a Murray in order to take a next step. I'm not sure he could do it on his own. 
Well, don't don't we all, Justin? We all need a little bit of Jamal Murray in our lives. But I mean, I think you could you could have said the same thing about AD when he was in New Orleans. And if you look at these other unicorn guys, I'm not sure who all we're putting in that bucket these days. But it's not like Kristaps Porzingis was out here winning a lot of games before he was with Luka Doncic. It's not like Carl yep. Anthony Towns has been setting the world on fire in terms of win loss. Like those guys need that kind of facilitating help. They need help in terms of translating a really interesting skill set into the shit that really matters. So you're saying yeah, Tim Hardaway think, Jr. isn't a, a appropriate number two? <laughs> I don't know what kind of mythological creature Tim Hardaway Jr. is. <laughs> a bucket getter, man. I think really, um, talking about unicorns, like seven-footers who have some perimeter skills is not that unusual anymore. Mm. What's unusual is KD. That's a unicorn. That's a legit seven-foot guard who can defend the three-point line and shoot 30-footers. That's what's like unique. The other guys is not, it's just different. He's just a different kind of guy. He's the one who's really special compared to the rest of them. To me, it's about creativity. I think when you have somebody like Jokic, you have to think outside the box as far as roster construction. And, you know, and I think the way people need to think about it, think about a guy like Steph Curry, who obviously Hall of Famer, legendary, changed the game. But the bottom line is if he didn't play with somebody like a Draymond Green, who when they sent the hard double at Steph, he could just dump it off. A guy on a four and three who can make incredible decisions 95% of the times, that matters. You replace Draymond Green with, I don't know, Hassan Whiteside? <laughs> it's not It's not the same effect. I think that's everybody has those issues where they need complementary pieces to unlock all the things that make them incredible, right? And I, I just cite Steph Curry, but you can say that about LeBron. You can say that about AD. You can say that about a number of people who, for them to be effective, they need certain things around them to, to for them to be at the peak of whatever it is that they bring to the table. Even, I, I guess the exceptions are people like, Kawhi Leonard, where it's just like, I'm just going to score 40 on an island no matter what. <laughs> like, that's, you know, he's the rare exception in that case. But even then, like on a team like the Clippers, we see when they don't have that lack of playmaking where that can come back and bite them, where they don't have that rim protection. It can come back and bite them. No matter who you have, you need to surround them with complementary pieces. I think Jokic is special enough that if you can put a just a, a, a basically a competent defense around him, you're going to get buckets. Yeah, I've been watching AD closely, and I think especially in that last game he played, just to close out the, the, the Trailblazers, he's definitely taking a leap. We've talked about this in the past, how his ball handling is coming, coming along. Some of his isolation game is coming along. He's bringing the ball up the court. Uh, but I still don't know if he didn't have a LeBron, just like he didn't have it in New Orleans, if this would be working as well as it could, because yeah, he's like, he'll attack a big from the top of the key and he has a matchup advantage there. But if you put the right defender on him, I don't know if he could still be that isolation scorer that you need him to be. And as we're seeing throughout these playoffs, and I do wonder increasingly if, if this is also like the bubble is enhancing this. A lot of it is just coming down to these guys just getting buckets. Uh, and that kind of brings me to Murray here. My big question with Murray is I always figured he had some version of this in him, maybe not to this level, but this is kind of what you expect from him. You know, he's not going to give you much on defense, but he can score when pretty much at will when he's on. Uh, Charks, I'm curious if he's actually taken as much of a leap as we think, or is he just on one of these amazing stretches? 
I mean, it's hard to say, right? Because he gets compared to like, who are his peers? Is he much better than like Donovan Mitchell or Devin Booker, right? Like, there's a lot of really, really good guards in the league. He's he's leaped leaped into that category. But then there's a category of like your top five, top 10 guys. I don't know that he's ever going to get quite to that level. Unless he becomes like Steph Curry or something. Rob, how old is Buddy Heald right now? <laughs> I, I think he, it's possible he's 37. Like, like, <laughs> Justin and I go back and forth all the time about is, is Buddy Heald older now than, or sorry, what is, is Jamal Murray older now than Buddy Heald was at the time he was drafted? I think we're quickly closing in on the date <laughs> at which that's no longer true. But for now, that's still the case. It's pretty close. <laughs> And this is this is the hill that I've been dying on for a few years, as as Rob knows. Like, so I was in New Orleans, and I was saying a, what is I think a pretty like bland statement for anyone who followed the league at large that Buddy was older, and so he was just beating up on younger players in college, and probably didn't have as high of a ceiling. Now I have since waffled on that take, as Buddy has been better than Murray, uh, especially on defense at times. But now Murray is kind of really coming into this, and. And I don't know, but I, I I think Charks, you're right. I think he is on this almost like second tier of, of like creators and playmakers along with Booker, with Mitchell, uh, SGA maybe, Tatum, although Tatum is kind of quickly elevating beyond that. I don't know. Where, where do we stand on all of those guys? If you had your pick of any of those guys, who you take it? Man, I feel bad saying this on a Ringer podcast, but I was one of the biggest Jason Tatum skeptics on the history of the planet. I just felt like all of this step back, 17-footer crap, is that's not sustainable offense for a team that's serious about winning, right? He was rarely getting to the basket. He was not a playmaker in any way, shape, or form. And the defense was a question mark. But since then... He's gotten exponentially better at all of that. And he gets to the free throw line. Four, that's the key to me. He gets to the free throw line 14 times against what is easily one of the three best defenses in the NBA. The, the wing versatility they have defensively, the, the scheme that they do with Nick Nurse being one of the smartest coaches in the NBA, that is elite NBA defenses. And Tatum comes out, goes to the line 14 times. When Marcus Smart is draining all of these freaking threes yesterday, it's Tatum finding him. He's getting better at playmaking, and he's be, he's become a plus NBA wing defender. Um, you combine all of those things, man, his ability to just straight up break elite defenses down one-on-one, his playmaking ability, his defensive ability, you got to give it to Tatum at this point. I was a skeptic. I was like, all of that Kobe, Kobe system, I'm going to shoot step backs at 19 foot, dribble, dribble, dribble. It looks cute when it goes in, but that's not effective offense. He's changed that up. That On a key possession against the Raptors in game two, he put his freaking head down, went downhill, got fouled, drained the free throws. That's... That's superstar shit right there. And so to me, it's, it's got to be Tatum, although I'm a big Donovan Mitchell fan and I love Devin Booker. And get SGA out of there. Get him out of there. <laughs> get him out of that discussion, please. <laughs> the, thing, the thing about Tatum, too, he's looked just amazingly calm against the yep. Raptors. I mean, that was where 
I, I really hesitate to make the Kawhi comparison with him just because I know how loaded that can be. But just kind of calmly going through his stuff, rock back, you know, pull Marcus all off balance, go by him, little turnaround jumper. All of a sudden, he's up to, you know, 32, 34 points. Like, the level of poise in doing that, the level of control in doing that. And to me, that's where Murray showed a little bit of a jump in this series. It was the yo-yo stuff off the dribble. It was, you know, pulling the defense just to step off balance and exploiting them. You know, there was the hot shooting from three, which is very clearly unsustainable. But then there's the way he was getting to the rim. And that's that's the important stuff for someone like Murray and for someone like Tatum to be able to work that in-between game so calmly against, as Waz laid out, one of the best defenses in the league, one of the most frenetic defenses in the league, and a defense that you can never be sure where the pressure is going to be coming from. Are they zoned up on this possession? Are they going to trap me on this possession? and Tatum was all over it. Yeah, I'm with Waz. I was a Tatum skeptic, but I got to take the loss on that one. Like, he's just a killer. And yep. you can't watch the playoffs. This is a big wing league, right? Big wings win championships. Mm-hmm. You take the big wing over the guard every time, right? Tatum just does so many things on the court now. He defends three positions. He spreads the floor. He gets buckets. He moves the ball now. That's just more valuable than a guard, I think, 10 out of 10 times. Yeah, let's let's talk about Mitchell real quick, just to, to not to short sell him. So obviously, his biggest moment in the NBA thus far. I think that's pretty fair to say at this point. Uh, I was a pretty big Donovan Mitchell skeptic early mm-hmm. on. Uh, I remember making some comments along the lines of he's Russell Westbrook, just uh, just a little, just not as hey, uh, high profile. Come on, come on. <laughs> so he's an Don't he's an that. MVP, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Westbrook for MVP officially, which goes down on, on my record. So <laughs> not, not my, my brightest moment, but no, I have to say like he would, he would do what you asked of him. He would score in big moments. He did it way earlier in his career than you would ask of a player like that. But then you'd look back on the stat lines. It's like, Oh, he was like five for like 26. This is like not the best thing in the world, but he's clearly like just evolved into everything that the jazz need, especially as sharks mentioned without Bingdanovich. Where are we on Mitchell? Because the question there, and Sharks, you wrote about this a little bit today for our blog here, is that even the best version of Mitchell needs a little bit of help. And if you look around everything that the Jazz have right now, it kind of seems like they're reaching like their ceiling, at least in terms of like age and, and where these guys are in their careers. I was looking at the numbers. So Mitchell's 23, Gobert's 28. But then like Bogdanovich, Conley, Ingles... These guys are in their 30s. And I think the concern for Utah is, okay, we're signing much to a five-year contract. In three years, those guys are going to be like barely NBA players at this point. Like, where's the young core around him? And I don't know really what the answer for that is, but if I was Mitchell, I'd be worried about that. Like, where am I? Like, like Jamal Murray's playing with three 25-year-olds. Where are those guys for me if I'm Mitchell? Yeah, I'm going to be honest about my own bias. As a New York City guy, I always... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big New York. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just in case the listeners were confused about that. Um, no, I, I have um, I have a bias towards guys who can get to the rim, right? At, at, at will because, you know, New York City guards can never shoot. But you can always get to the rim, right? <laughs> but, so, but so I always loved that about Mitchell. I always loved his ability to break guys down and get to the basket if he put his mind to it. He wasn't always good at drawing fouls. I think that's something he needs to improve upon. 
Um, he wasn't even necessarily always good at finishing, but I loved his explosion and his ability to get there. That's such an elite skill in the NBA when you're talking about the most premium perimeter defenders on the planet. So I'm somebody who's going to die, you know, sinking with the Donovan Mitchell ship. But as I'm watching him, his mid-range has improved. His three-point has improved. The next step of his game, honestly, is the playmaking. It's the stuff that made Rudy Gobert pissed off all season. You know what I mean? Like not being found when he's open underneath. Um, that's the thing that he has to develop next. But I'm somebody who believes in Mitchell um, I, you know, I had a conversation with a couple of friends online before the playoffs started, and they were talking about going forward. Who'd you rather, SGA or Donovan Mitchell? I'm just like, what? What are we talking about? Then Mitchell <laughs> comes out and drops fifty. Like that is like to me, he's a special talent. Um, he's somebody you should want to keep, man. I would rather SGA, by the way. Oh That's no, That's insanity. Justin. That is insanity. Oh boy, what, what does he do better than Donovan Mitchell? Eventually, everything. <laughs> just, just to you clarify, know, we're talking about the guy that the Rockets are just picking on relentlessly because he can't guard anyone in that series, right? That's the that's SGA we're talking about. Yeah, but he's young, you know. <laughs> you know, I love SGA, but you're getting him. You're getting him getting strays right now, Justin. Just, yeah, they'll, they'll have him these strays. He just needs to put on like a hundred more pounds, <laughs> okay. and he'll be fine. <laughs> okay, so you know, safe. maybe just not look shook in every big moment. <laughs> It's all Chris Paul's fault, you know? He's got that, like, dad-like presence. As soon as he loses him, he'll just be unleashed. That's what it's come down to. No, but I think this is an interesting question just about Mitchell, primarily because they're kind of on the verge of this really existential offseason right now. So quietly, like, or maybe not quietly, as much as you, like, depending on how much you follow Twitter, pretty much Bobby Marks every time. Gobert is up for an extension. He is somehow super max eligible because of all of the Defensive Player of the Year awards. He won't get that, but he is due a lot of money this offseason. Donovan Mitchell also due a lot of money this offseason. There's a little bit of a wrinkle there because Mitchell can wait until next offseason when Mike Conley comes off the book, and then you could add some there. Then you get into this dance of, well, do you, is Donovan going to want to add another guy? If you're Utah, can you really risk that, especially since kind of the ghosts of Gordon Hayward pass aren't really that far away? So, Rob, if you're looking at this, is there, like, really any appreciable way that they can get better? Or is this really what they have to work with going forward? Well, I think, you know, the locking those players up on long-term deals, if you can. Like, I mean, you're not messing around with Donovan Mitchell. If that guy wants to sign an extension, you give him what he wants. Especially if you're you keep Utah. him in town. Yeah, especially yep. if you're Utah. I mean, that's the thing with guys like Mitchell, where we're talking about his timeline. Like like Charks mentioned, why, why they don't have other young players on the roster. I think the reality that we don't want to talk about with these teams sometimes is that they don't even have that luxury in some cases. If you build on Donovan Mitchell's timeline as the Jazz, like the Nugget situation is so unique just because Michael Porter panned out the way he did. But if you're playing Donovan Mitchell's age as your timeline, he's going to get out of there. He's going to leave at first opportunity because the team isn't good enough to hold him there. And so I think, you know, having guys like Gobert help, having a healthy Bogdanovich helps. I think the Jazz are good enough to try to get healthy, try to take another crack at it next season. And I think you, you try you do your best to keep Gobert at a reasonable number, even knowing that you might have to trade him. Because that's when things get dicey, is when these other contracts expire, you have massive deals potentially for Mitchell and Gobert on the books. How are you building around them in a way that's going to be satisfactory? That's tough. But you want Mitchell as the centerpiece of that team, and you're going to worry about the rest later, I think. Hey, Rob, I got a question for you. 
Yep. Would you rather be Devin Booker right now or Donovan Mitchell in terms of your supporting cast going forward? Are we talking just supporting cast or are we taking into account like the efficacy of the front office? That's (laughs) tough. Just just the guys around him though. Just the the players. I'm I'm still taking Rudy Gobert. Like I I still think he's just so much better than anyone who's on the Suns right now. And you know, again, I I get wanting to bet long-term with a guy like Aiton or Bridges, like seeing the potential there. I'm, I'm excited about what the Suns could be. Rudy Gobert is really good. I, I don't want to gloss over that in this conversation at all. Can we slow down about the Suns real quick? I know they won eight straight yeah, games. We, we do need to did they win? Like, they won eight <laughs> games probably in the regular season. <laughs> so as, as encouraged as I am about Booker and the future there, I wouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden, like, he wants out midseason next year. That, that's my only worry there. It's just like they have a good core. I don't know if they have an elite. That, that's all I'm saying. Was well, sorry, interrupt you. Yeah, no. As far as the Jazz are concerned, to me, I'm encouraged by what I saw yesterday night. In the sense that they played with a level of effort and passion, and execution on defense that is high level NBA defensive ex- execution, right? And you can't just poo poo that. Um, particularly when you consider two things: one, the regular season that they had where they did not play up to the standard. And most of it, we know for a fact from reports and rumors and innuendo that you see in the media, Rudy was just fed up with guys not giving him the ball. Like, I played this defensive player of the year level defense for you guys. I'm the reason we're a top defense and I can't get a look or two. And we saw that the whole regular season. Then, of course, he got blamed for the coronavirus in America outbreak, right? <laughs> and, and you hear the and you hear the whispers, of course. And we know where this is coming from. It's coming from Donovan Mitchell's camp about how the situation might be untenable in Utah. Is irreparable in Utah? Blah 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 blah. And then I watched him play Game Seven, and I'm like, look, if they have Bogdanovich. If Conley's able to play at a reasonable level, because he was lights out, you know, for most of that series, he had a bad game seven, but he was really good. If you can get him to play close to that level, and I think Donovan Mitchell is going to improve upon the player that he is today, that's a damn good team. I don't know that you're as good as the Clippers or Lakers, because we're talking about all-time great talents on that on those teams as far as LeBron and Kawhi but man you're a damn good team if that's the case okay I'm gonna have to throw some Gobert shade real quick (laughs) oh so (laughs) he's a two-time defensive player of the year like I respect I mean great interior defender blah 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 you cannot watch (laughs) the series to me and say Rudy Gobert is gonna take over series on defense against elite teams I just feel like the style of play that he has in the playoffs because I think sometimes people say, okay, Gobert gets played off the floor. That's not, that's not correct. But what it is, though, is Gobert can no longer dominate against a five-out offense with enough shooting, right? So that means, like, if your team is based on Gobert dominating on defense, there's a ceiling. Like, to me, if I'm Utah, he should probably be my fourth best player. I'm going to win a championship. I just don't see where those other two players are going to come from. If Mitchell's number one, where are you going to find that number two player, that number three player? Because, yeah, Lakers, Clippers... Well, next year, the Warriors are going to be back, right? The Rockets always beat the Jazz pretty much consistently. That's four teams right there. Like, that's my concern if I'm Utah. I mean, it depends on your threshold for success, right? Like, I think Utah, if they're getting to the conference finals and they have those kinds of problems, that's a good year. Like, that's a good year for any franchise. If we're talking about what separates 
the truly elite title-worthy teams that have a LeBron, that have a Kawhi, that have these mid-range killers who are just going to destroy whatever you throw at them in terms of drop defense and stuff like that. I think that's just a different level than we're we're talking about with a team like yep. this. And, and maybe that's I, I don't mean to talk down to the Jazz in that way. Like th- that's a commendable season if you can get that far. And I think you're you know, Utah. G- just say it, Rob. You're Utah. <laughs> well, given where you ended up, too, like that's certainly better than losing in the first round. Like you you get a healthy, decent team around a guy like Gobert, around a guy like Mitchell. That's a good group. And I think I think where you're sick if you're Utah is watching Donovan Mitchell d up Jamal Murray in Game Seven where if he has the energy to actually dig in and guard there, this this series may have gone completely differently. But he doesn't because he has to drop 40 and 50 in these Mm. games just to keep his team alive. Yeah, I don't know if there is a Utah problem per se. Like Going into this season, we were talking about them on the same level, maybe not the Clippers and the Lakers, but just right below there. Like Bogdanovich is still a good addition. They didn't have him at all during any of these bubble game. And and as you mentioned, Charks, I think he's going to be a a key addition. If I'm looking at like the big picture, the issue to me is more Mike Conley. That Mike Conley didn't end up being the player that they thought he would be, that he struggled to really fit in there, especially with Rudy Gobert. I don't know if he's as much of an upgrade as they needed him to be. And while I guess next season, you kind of have to roll the dice... At the same time, if Mitchell plays ball and is willing to just like not accept his extension until next offseason, that's a lot of money that you could just like play with in next summer in order to keep this thing rolling. I don't think they're as fixed as we think they are. That they have options, I guess is what I'm saying. I guess what I would say is you're talking about like what's Utah's threshold of success? What's Donovan Mitchell's threshold of success? That's really the question, right? Cuz like he could be Dame Willard, I think. I think Dame seems pretty happy in Portland being a guy, being the legend, getting 40 points, losing the first round. That seems cool with him. What does Mitchell want? I don't know. And can Mitchell bring someone else to Utah who's legit? Is he that much of a draw that someone's like, I want to play with Mitchell in Utah? I don't know. <laughs> I think also what we got to remember is the last time, you know, a black guy, the caliber of a Donovan Mitchell wanted to be in Utah that long was probably Carl Malone. Um, and that guy drives tractors. <laughs> and so, like, this just something, it's just something to think about. Just just to keep keep in mind there, man. That's a special, special type of cat, Carl Malone. So, <laughs> you know, just, just keep that in mind, guys. I do have a question about the Mitchell-Gobert relationship. Do you think this series changed that at all? Just because if you're Rudy, like, I get it. As a big guy wanting the ball, it makes all the sense in the world, especially with his level of defense. But when Donovan's out there putting up the numbers he is, it's kind of inarguable at that point. And, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not saying Mitchell can be that guy on a full-time basis, but if he's a couple steps closer to that on a you know full regular season going forward, if he's that kind of player— if you're Gobert, maybe you're a little more content to just kind of fill a role and do your thing and not see quite as many passes as you might like. My guess, it comes down to success. If they're a one, two, three seed, yeah, I'll buy into a smaller role, whatever. If they're a five, six, seven, eight seed, it's like, well, shoot, give me some touches then. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I, I, would, I would tend to agree with that. But I do think there's just something to the idea of guys going through an entire playoff run together, understanding that, like, you know, Denver is essentially our peers in the Western Conference, right? And we should have probably beat them 
and we played our hearts out and you to watch your teammate put it on the line the way the dude was exhausted by the end of that game. He was gassed. I think that's part of why he had that huge turnover. He was just done. And you watch what he did against Jamal Murray defensively. I think it's hard to see that and just say, oh, who cares? Give me my alley hoops so I could have stone hands and brick layups, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it helps that the bubble happened so quickly after all of that fallout between them. Like if they had more months and an entire summer and an entire preseason in order to fester, I do wonder if this thing would have come to a head a, a little bit more. But now they, at the very least, you've seen that this works, right? I mean, I think Waz has a point there, but I don't know. I think if you could also play devil's advocate and say, hey, if we were at full strength, maybe we would have had a better shot. That's all we actually needed. Denver only needed Gary Harris to just take a, a, a step forward and win this series. All we needed is bogey, and then we're back in this. But JB, um, the difference is not flaming out. Because just look at, say, look look at how Philly looked, right? Or take a, or my favorite example, look at how Oklahoma City looked last year when they essentially flamed out of the playoffs and the team was detonated, right? I think that's part of why. It's like, look at what we did together. And, you know, the team gets detonated. Westbrook gets traded, even though OKC fans are still saying Russ stayed. I don't understand that, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the difference, right? It's like, look at how OKC flamed out and everybody looked at each other and said, Let's, let's blow this up. Let's get out of here. Compared to what Utah did, it's hard to look at that effort and look at, you know, how close they got and, and say, let's get these guys out of here. Well, plus, they didn't even need a healthy roster. They needed one shot. Like, that was yeah. it. My, one Mike Conley, three in and out. That's the difference. That's the whole thing right there. And here they are. They're they're watching the playoffs like us. Uh, Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we're having a lot of fun. We have a, we have gardeners to, to take care of things while you're watching the games. Um <laughs> Uh, let's talk just briefly before we move on to the Celtics and Raptors uh, about this Clippers Nuggets series. Charks, any quick thoughts about this? Do the Nuggets have any chance, or does the fact that Jamal Murray just found out that the series starts a day from now uh, does that not bode well for them? Well, I just think it's tough with Denver because always all year it's like, how do they guard big wings? Who's their perimeter size? And now you've got Kawhi. Like watching Kawhi against Dallas and what he was doing to pretty good defenders in Kleber and Finney Smith, it was just like. This guy is on another level. He really can't be stopped. He can guard all five positions. I just feel like this could be Kawhi's play again, where we're just seeing Kawhi's takeover round after round, just wrecking people. Yeah, it seems obvious to me that, <laughs> that Denver's going to get their asses kicked. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, the matchup is just death for them, um, partly because of how the Clippers can defend them. Um, the throwing of huge size and speed at the wing position at Murray, where it's just like guys are going to be draped all over you. All your little fadeaways and all of that, that's that's not going to happen. These dudes are going to be in your shirt all season long. And then, of course, conversely, you know, who's supposed to guard Kawhi Leonard and Paul George? I know we keep saying Kawhi, but Paul George is still a he's still an all-star NBA player. He needs to be guarded, too. Who's going to guard those guys? I, I just don't see it happening for them. And I think the Clippers are going to be way more relentless about Jokic and attacking him in space and making him have to think defensively. And so I, I just think the matchup is a nightmare in a way that it's actually a nightmare, not like how the Rockets are a nightmare for the Lakers, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 
<laughs> I mean, there's strays everywhere in this podcast. My goodness. <laughs> I mean, if you're giving up 120 to the Jazz on a regular basis, I, I got real bad news for you playing the Clippers. Like that, that's yep. it's it's going to be really rough for for Denver's defense. But Gary Harris, though, you know, <laughs> I mean, Lou Williams is going to have a real tough time, but it's just not going to matter very much. I think Jokic, it really kind of falls on him to have a big series. Like he was pretty much relegated to a jump shooter with Gobert just completely like walling off the the paint in this past series. And so if he could do a little bit much, uh, a little bit more, get Zubac moving, uh, attack some of those smaller defenders that that the Clippers are going to switch on to him if they want to go smaller. I, I think this is really his moment. Uh, to do something. All right, let's take a quick break. uh, And when we come back, we're going to talk about the Celtics and Raptors and get into Nerd Corner with Charks. All right, we're back. Uh, We're talking about the East now. The Celtics go up 2-0 on the Raptors last night. I just want to clear out for just really quickly here because all season for an entire year, we have heard about how underrated the Toronto Raptors are. Every time you mention them or don't mention them, what you hear is they're so good. They should be talked about on the same level as the Bucks and the Lakers. Why don't you give the Raptors respect? This is why this is their first actual playoff test without Kawhi, and so far they have not done well at all. I know this most recent game was kind of a coin flip. It came down to Marcus Smart pretty much playing like Steph Curry for five minutes, but that first game, they just looked completely overmatched. Their transition offense was slowed down, and all of a sudden they just didn't have the horses to step up, especially Pascal Siakam, who has just looked off this entire postseason, even against the Nets. I think he's shooting under 40% from the floor right now. And I think like if the Raptors get swept this series, I think that all Raptors fans are banned from calling anything underrated for at least five years. We need a Joe Smith level suspension for the Raptors because quite frankly, like I'm, I'm sick of hearing it. They are exactly what we thought they would be. You know, the, the crazy thing is I'm, I'm somebody who I have a special affinity for the Raptors because they made me look like a genius for coming out of the East <laughs> last year. And, and so, you know, I, I like to see them do well, right? Uh, but the bottom line is, in, and we say it over and over and over again, but in these postseason matchups and situations in a close game, you have to get reliable offense in against great set defenses. And if you don't have the type of players who can create advantages against those types of defenses, you're not going to go very far. And the Raptors don't possess that. Much as I love Van Vliet, much as I love Siakam, much as I love Kyle Lowry, Mark Gasol, you name it, they don't possess those type of players, those type of guys who can get quality looks. And oftentimes these are mid-range looks in a, against this, a set half-court defense um, consistently. And so it's going to be tough for them to manufacture buckets. How they're going to have to do this is basically rely on Fred Van Vliet dropping, um, you know, pull-up threes from 26 at a decent clip. Kyle Lowry actually not going 0 for 7 from 3. You know, they're going to have to rely on those type of things. Siakam, 
operating in transition, you know, being able to get mismatches against smaller guys on his post-ups. They're going to have to rely upon that. And if that's not happening, when you get in a close game, they don't have a guy who can deliver the type of possession that Kemba Walker did, right? Where he he runs a pick and roll, he gets the, the, the Ibaka switch, and he just cooks him. Crossover, step back. I create about a freaking mountain of space between me and my defender. And you know I can make 17-footers. You the know. Gary McGee. Exactly. <laughs> the Big East tournament. Wow. Exactly. You caught deep cuts today. Exactly. And you know and you know I can make that shot. And the Raptors don't possess that. As much as I love Nick Nurse as a coach, I love their defense. I love all of their parts, but all of their parts are kind of ancillary type of parts. They don't have consistent go-to one-on-one ISO type of guys. I mean, Toronto definitely could have won this game. They had their chances. They had windows to put this thing away and did not. But they kind of set the tone right up front, which is, you know, they get they get rocked in game one. They come out in game two, and Nick Nurse is a coach who we can trust Nick Nurse to make the right kinds of adjustments to see the opportunities in a series. And off the bat, he's going to ISOing and posting Siakam against guys like Jalen Brown, against guys like Jalen Jason Tatum. I, I'm not sure that's the wrong decision. Like that's an important. He has to establish Pascal scoring in the half court in some way to get their offense moving. And yet, if that's the option on which your team is going to have to rely, you're probably going to lose. Like like those guys are really good wing defenders who are going to be able to punch above their weight. Siakam has looked really awkward all series, trying to create off the dribble, trying to create in the half court. But that's kind of where the Raptors are right now, especially when they're missing damn near every three they put up. Yeah, I mean, you got to give Jalen Brown his props. Like, there ain't very many guys who are a mismatch against Jalen Brown when he's guarding them. Like, it just doesn't happen often. And I think what Waz said is important, talking about when Kemba switched on to Serge Ibaka and got that shot. If I'm Toronto, I think you just got to go even smaller. You got to play as small as Boston. I would probably play Pascal at the five, OG at the four, and switch everything. And just play, like, five guards. Because really, like, Boston's a very small team, right? They're basically Houston with better wings. Like, their center is Daniel Theis, right? They're playing four guards the whole game. I get to play their style. Like, Marcus Gasol in the series, what's he really doing out there? I'm not sure. This has been a very difficult series for me personally. Marcus Gasol looks awful. The Nuggets basically <laughs> won by not playing Paul Millsap anymore, and Al Horford <laughs> just got completely run off the court. My whole worldview is shattering. Yes. I don't know what to do. Please, please respect my and my family's privacy during this time. We we just we just gotta hope Roco does his thing tonight, mm. man. <laughs> we just say Mahoney. <laughs> Can't take it. Can't take it. <laughs> no, listen, the, the what the Raptors did this season is an accomplishment. Nick Nurse is a goddamn warlock. They made more out of that team than I think anyone, even the biggest optimists and the biggest Toronto fans ever expected. And they should be commended for that. It's just I think to Waz's earlier point in the earlier segment, Tatum is just doing some star shit. Like yep, I know is. that Walker Walker made that big shot toward the end after he missed pretty much every single shot he took in the first half. Uh, I think it, literally every single shot he took in the first half and Marcus Smart played big and all these other things. But before all of that or in the middle of all of that happening, Tatum was not only doing it scoring, but his playmaking was incredible. He was getting guys open shots in uh, the paint with Daniel Thice, he was activating Robert Williams. He was getting guys open for corner threes and Marcus Smart. I, I just think that is the difference. And I think like we want to just like overcomplicate everything so much that a team that is so well coached, like the Raptors, can play so well, they can overcome all of the the not having Kawhi stuff. 
But ultimately, stars win this league, and Tatum is leveling up to a superstar to the point where he's kind of the difference in this series. Is that like... I don't think that's dumbing things down. I don't think that's being no, it's not. reductive at all. It's not. And the thing, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, is that Toronto's team last year is actually, to me, a much better team than the Clippers this year. In the sense that Kawhi, as we know, can operate on an island. And when they need him, that break glass in case of emergency, that's going to happen. And the rest of the game, they can save him doing all of their continuity stuff. And we can see the theory of that happening this season where it's like, this is a 50-win team without Kawhi. I promise you, I promise you, the Clippers without Kawhi, where Paul George is basically Moses leading them to the promised land, those people (laughs) are going to die starving. (laughs) That's not going to happen. That team would stink. I promise you that team would stink. It would be a horrible team. But Toronto was so perfectly... What if they had SGA, though? (laughs) (laughs) SGA! Oh, my goodness. And, and, you know, and and that's what I'm saying. Like, last year, that team was so beautifully constructed in the sense that they could grind people to dust defensively. Kawhi cannot have to be relied upon to generate decent looks every single possession where it's like, we're we're running pick and rolls with Lowry. We're running pick and rolls with Van Vliet. We're finding pick and pops with Marc Gasol wide open. We're able to generate decent offense. And then when our freaking Terminator 2 T-1000 needs to be used, we got that and we're taking you out. Um, they don't have that. <laughs> they they have they have short rolls with one of their last baskets that they scored was a floater from Ibaka from like twelve feet. That's your crunch time offense, <laughs> you know. Like it, it's 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 tough, man. And I love the Raptors, but it's it's not gonna happen for them. Yeah, if, if I can borrow a, a Kevin Artivism, like to say that a team overachieved is a compliment. And I think that's yes, where the Raptors course. are. Like they overachieved with this group. And this of is course. the reality check on that. You know, when you don't have that half court creation, when you're, and one thing that's really stuck out to me, and this is weird saying it's the team that's playing the Celtics, but the Raptors look so small. And it's because when you're reliant on Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet, to drive as your primary source of offense, and they're driving into a bunch of guys who are 6'8 and standing in a crowd around the basket, all of a sudden, everything looks a lot more daunting. Yeah, I mean, Lowry's playing Tatum a lot. Yeah. That's 6 over 6'8". To look small against the Celtics is an accomplishment yeah. as well, considering that they are playing two munchkins in the backcourt. <laughs> like, <laughs> as good as good as smart as on defense. But no, one thing, it looks like the Celtics are kind of having a charmed run to. It just feels like things are aligning in the right ways. Like Hayward obviously adds a lot to that team, but I almost feel like clearing the way and just like throwing out any sort of lineup configurations or, or uh, uh, decisions and just going with smart as much as possible is almost made them a better version of their best selves. Like smart is like, he'll give you plays like that. I mean, he'll also probably shoot you out of a game at times, but it just seems like everything is aligning for them, not only just like within their team, but also in the East where the Bucks are looking shaky all of a sudden. And I think like the Heat, even if they win that series are beatable, like all of a sudden, I wonder if the Celtics could go on a run like the Raptors did last year. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I actually, I actually still, as, as, as bad as the Bucks have looked throughout the entire bubble. And for me, it's more about their defense than anything. 
Um, I think they're just just slightly better than Boston, and specifically the matchup with Giannis, where Boston doesn't quite have the heft, you know, to deal with him. So I think that's going to be a problem for them. But what you said is it, your point is still taken in the sense that their continuity is there. And I know we spent all of last season, you know, hemming and hawing about the Kyrie dynamic and how everybody hated the guy. And, you know, part of me was like, come on, that's got to be an overrated narrative. Um, At a certain point, you got to hoop. But then watching this team do what they do without him, you know, it's it's been proven and borne out. Uh, I, I do like the juju of this team. I just think... Matchup-wise, I think the Bucs are ultimately going to claw their way out of that series against the Heat. is going to be tough, but I think they're going to be able to do it. But the matchup with the Bucs is a tough one for them. Yeah, I, I guess the, the Heat would have to come out of that series. Yes, because, yes. yes. And if that aligns, I think then the Celtics have yep. a shot. I don't know if they would be any team that come out of the West, but I don't know. All of a sudden, they're just looking really good. It seems like they have everything clicking. Um, do you want to talk about the, the Bucs quickly, just as a side tangent here? If we're talking about teams that were overrated, I don't know if the Bucks were overrated so much as Mike Budenholzer might be overrated. I just, mm. I'm, I'm just like really getting sick of watching Bucks series where they need to get punched in the mouth at least once, maybe twice, before they start even considering something different. Charks, you, you've like talked about this a lot with with Bud. Are you as frustrated as I am just seeing them struggle? after this just incredible regular season. My guy, James Herbert at CBS Sports, he had a big article today about Buttonholzer. And there's this quote in there at the end of it. And it's, I think it says it all. It says, he's asking Bud about matchups and adjustments. And Bud says, we kind of do what we do and hopefully it's good enough. And to me, that logic is just like unacceptable. <laughs> like I've watched LeBron for like 10 years in the playoffs. LeBron always changes up what he does in the playoffs because he's and he's LeBron James. Right? Like <laughs> LeBron's teams always move around. Attack matchups are very versatile, and you've got possibly the best player of all time, and he's willing to do that. So possibly you could do that too. That's all I'm saying. I do want to say one thing in defense of of Bud, specifically um, Game One, and our homie Justin Amino Hassan actually pointed this out. They pre-adjusted in Game One. They they brought the bigs up and started getting cooked in the lane when they're supposed to be the clog the lane team, right? And got completely cooked for it because they were worried about, you know, the <laughs> the Vanilla Brothers. You know, they were worried about Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero. They were so worried about what those guys would do at three with the, against the drop defense, and they got exposed you know, underneath the basket. I think what you're going to see them do is, so like, it's so funny. Like they did the pre-adjustment game one and got cooked. And what you're going to see them do is revert back to clogging the lane and being like, yo, if Miami is going to kick our asses from downtown, then we're just going to have to lose this series. The Vanilla Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I commend them on that. But like, I'm not going to go wild over the fact that they decided to put like, salt and pepper on their steak. You know what I mean? It's not like they're just like <laughs> reaching into their spice rack and just coming up with something no, new. No, no, no. They, like they, was... they didn't throw a box in one at Steph Curry in the finals. They <laughs> right. didn't do that. No. It's just, it's just really frustrating when their whole thing is like, yeah, Giannis driving kick out to these three-point shooters. It works so well. The math is there. All these shooters have all this. 
And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this isn't working all that well. And they just don't do anything different. It's like, watch Giannis just ram his head over and over again into a wall. And then you're kicking out to Pat Connaughton as opposed to like a Bledsoe or someone else. And I'm just like, what are we doing here? And why is Pat Connaughton on the floor so much? Like, I was just going to say. Yeah. Like, what? what is that adjustment? Just like, is this like typical coach like you got to play the guys who are grinders or whatever it's just like can we just <laughs> Wes Matthews is a grinder though <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. so that so doesn't even make sense yeah because uh, even when Bud adjusts it's like hard to follow the logic sometimes of his adjustments like in that game so Wes Matthews guards Butler real tight in the first half down the stretch of the game he benches Wes Matthews for Pat Connaughton and puts Middleton on Butler and Butler just cooks Middleton for four minutes and it's just like the logic of that move I just I can't follow it I think you can either kind of stick to your principles or keep Giannis's minutes down, but you can't do both. Like if you, oh if my you, God, if yes. you want to be the battering Ram team that's going to play the way we play and stick to your stuff, like you can win that way because you have Giannis, but you need to play him 42 minutes every game to get that chance against these high-level teams. Like, I think there's something to be said for saving him down the stretch, but especially in the first half, like he just needs to be stretched further. Like we need to keep our best players on the floor more often if we're going to beat a team like the Heat. Do you think if Bud didn't grow up in the pop system, we would give him this much leeway? Like if he was like the top assistant for Vinny Del Negro, would we like revere him as as much as he did? Because I do think like he gets away with a lot of it when, yeah, he is he he really took the Bucks to another level in the regular season. But the past two postseasons, man, they have been rough. I, but the thing is, he's won. That, you know, like, that's that's the thing. He's actually won. This isn't a Brett Brown situation, right? <laughs> Who, again, I know he was hamstrung by the process, and we're not going to do that here today. But he never won. <laughs> Bud has won. He won in Atlanta with a group that nobody thought he should have been winning that much with. Um, a complete, like, uh, an obviously limited group. And he's won with the Bucks. He elevated them. I mean, the difference between him and Jason Kidd, I, that that upgrade is, is just crazy. And so, you know, they lost a close series in the conference finals last year against the eventual NBA champions. And, you know, <laughs> this, this, this postseason has gotten off to a weird start. But, you know, let's let it play out and see what it happens. But if they just get creamed in five games, which I don't think is going to happen, I think they're going to win a really close, probably seven-game series. But if they get creamed in five games to Miami, to Duncan Robinson and Goran Dragic and Tyler, rookie Tyler Hero, and, and, and like, if they get creamed by that team, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> it's tough. It's real tough. But I, th- I think that the conference finals qualifier from last season is important because we talk like Bud, like he was swept, like the Bucks just got you know their asses yeah. handed to them. Like that was a good team on a good run. Should they have gotten to the finals? Yeah. Like, but they're, I mean, what up two zero overtime in game three, or sorry, double overtime. I think in game three. Yeah. If that game three swings a slightly different way, it's a totally different series. Like I. Ultimately, with the, with the stuff we're talking about, does Marcus Smart hit five threes in a row in the first four minutes of the fourth of the fourth quarter or whatever? Like sometimes series swing on stuff like that, and I feel like that's kind of what happened to the Bucks last year. Effectively, I would say too, like going back to about Utah with like these thresholds. When you're coaching prime Giannis, the threshold is championship, right? There's no coming in second, no coming in third. This is the best player Milwaukee's had in 50 years. When you have that level of player, the stakes are just so much higher. 
Like, we're not going to be okay with a finals loss. Like, you've got Giannis for one more playoff, maybe two. Maybe he stays, maybe he doesn't. Maybe this is your best chance to win in 50, another 50 years. And when that's the case, it's just like the, the pressure's higher, the stakes are higher, expectations are higher. Now it's like for Bud, it's show and prove. Like, realistically, this is the best player you're ever going to have on your team. You're going to championship, now it's time to do it. Totally fair. Yeah. The disrespect in, in, of Glenn Big Dog Robinson charge. I can't, <laughs> I can't believe you, man. That's crazy, man. Yeah, the the Bucks so far have have beaten who? The the Pistons. They just got by the Magic and they beat the garbage Celtics. So there you go. Like well, it's it's real legacy builder right now. <laughs> Speaking of legacies, uh Sharks had this piece up yesterday, uh just looking at NBA superstars through the prism, not by rings, but by series wins, their series records. I want to get into this, but I specifically want to get into this through the um, through the, the lens of Harden and Westbrook or, or Harden and Chris Paul tonight, just because this is a big game and I want to get into this. So clearly, uh, this game, this series has gone awry if you're the Rockets, and it's kind of gotten to the point now where it feels like Harden's legacy is on the line a little bit, and that's the type of thing like before, like it sounds hot takey, but I kind of feel like it's true. Because we're at the point where obviously his playoff record is behind him, and to get beat, and not only beat but like have the the Thunder come from behind, led by the guy that you forced off your team. I don't know if there's really coming back from this. So, um, Sharks, you want to take us through where Harden and even Russ and CP3 are on this list of of series records? Basically, what I was looking at is just like I'm going to go through all these guys' careers look at every playoff series they've been in, wins and losses. If you get hurt, it doesn't count, right? So like this pretty simple stuff. And I, I was doing, I'm doing this list, and I think we all realize the value of big wings, but just how crazy the numbers are. So number one, LeBron is 36 and 10. Durant, 19 and 6. Kawhi, 17 and 4. That's a top three. You've got Steph at 16 and 4. But then the rest of these guards, you have... Harden, 11 and 10. Lowry, 9 and 5. Russ, 9 and 8. CP3, 7 and 9. Dame, 5 and 8. And you look at these numbers, like, man, it's just so hard for guards to win consistently in the playoffs year after year. And there's these special kind of 6 8, 6 9 guard wings LeBron, Durant, Kawhi. Like, there's just different levels to this. And it just feels like if you're a guard without a guy like that on your team, it's just going to be really hard for you. One of the things that jumped out to me about this list too is it it kind of reads as an indictment against long-term commitment because so many of these guards are guys who have locked up with one team for a really long time. They've been quote-unquote loyal. They've stuck through a couple different changes. Guys like Dame, guys like Russ with the Thunder. And how are you rewarded for something like that versus the guys at the top? And you can draw the causalities here however you want. But the LeBrons, the Kevin Durants, the Kawhis, like those guys are clearly in demand and can move around. And as we talked about in this conversation, can be you can just drop them into a, to a team and, and they would make a lot of sense pretty much anywhere. But that kind of stuck out to me that those guys were, were kind of more the mercenary set. And yet they're also the guys who are winning everywhere they go. Yeah, for me, what I don't know. For me, when whenever we have these conversations, it's did you play up to or exceed whatever standard you set in the regular season? Not were you Superman? Were you this? Were you, did you play up to the standard that you've set for yourself by your play over a long period of time? If the answer is yes, which to me, 
Chris Paul mostly plays up to his standards in the playoffs. His team might lose. They might choke in a bad situation. But for the most part, he's playing up to his standards. Kawhi plays better (laughs) in the playoffs, right? KD has mostly been up to his standards. LeBron, of course, we know what his record is in the playoffs, right? Um, Harden and Russell Westbrook, that is not the case. Russell Westbrook has never played like an MVP in the NBA playoffs, ever. Not one time in his career has he done that in the playoffs, right? You can take a counterexample, which I love to use, which is LeBron in 2009 against the Magic. They lost pretty handily. Like, the Magic were just an actual matchup nightmare. And I know I keep beating a dead (laughs) drum, but they were a matchup nightmare for them. But LeBron played up to and exceeded his own standard. They just lost. That's different from what we watch Harden and Westbrook specifically do every single season in the playoffs. They play below their standards always. And I think that that's meaningful. I would say going back to what you're saying, it's a question of what the standard is, right? Like I would, Chris Paul has never been underachieving. He's a six foot guard, right? There's only so high he's going to go. So the question is more like, Let's remember that when Dame's dropping 50 a night and people are saying he's the best player in the world. It's just like, just not the case. And that's totally fine. And I think for the Harden and Westbrook, maybe it's not so much like they're not playing as good. Maybe like they put up big numbers in the regular season on good teams. So they give them awards. They get to the playoffs though and they're smaller guards playing against freaking monsters. Like to me, some of Harden's reputation He's already gone past the first round exit guy. If he's going to be like, have this year be a legacy year, he has to beat LeBron and AD in the second round. Is he really going to do that? Like the matchups <laughs> suggest that he might. <laughs> Man, I, I am well, really not ready for the James Harden conversation <laughs> if they lose. Just because everything we're saying it here, this is a totally reasonable line of criticism with Harden. Like his record is what it is in the playoffs. But there's this weird moralistic component with him where he's ruining the game. People don't like the way he approaches things. Like it it drifts into this really weird, dark place that if he loses a series like this one, where again, rightly, the Rockets should get blasted if they do lose this. They threw away two of these games. I just don't want any part of the conversation that's going to result from it. Yeah, I only really root for two things. One is for a short series. And two is for the discourse not to veer into ways that I know are just going to be infuriating. <laughs> and it does feel like we're kind of doing that. But no, to to Waz's point about like how teams set their own expectations... I do feel like the Rockets in Harden set the expectation that they should be able to beat Chris Paul because they sent him off to like the <laughs> island of misfits toys yes. and all of a sudden like here they are just on the ropes and like if anything I was more encouraged about the Rockets after they like went into this full small ball like extremism sort of approach than I had been before that because everything just seemed to work they were this big like chaos agent you could see like earlier even in the series and earlier in the seeding games like teams were struggling to match up with them Jeff Green was good again. Like everything was going well. Listen, and listen, so- and listen, listen to what you. Let's just, let's, let's just, let's just take a step back and and listen to what you just said, Jeff Green. And, and one one of the things you said is Jeff Green is going to play well. Another thing that you didn't say is that Russell Westbrook is going to play well on clutch possessions in a playoff game in the half court. 
That has never happened in the history of the world, <laughs> ever. And so the theory of the Rockets was always like, but Westbrook's going to play. And Mike D'Antoni doesn't have the juice to sit him and just straight up actually do the five out with a guy who can actually make reliably hit a wide open jumper. You know, it was funny. I was listening to Rosillo and Royce Young talk about the Westbrook and Harden dynamic um, in relation to game six and that last possession and all of this stuff. And Royce said something that I just completely disagree with. I love Royce. He's obviously dope at his job. But he said that Westbrook is somebody who embraces the moment because he's willing to take a, 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 a brick of 17-footer, a contested 17-footer under pressure. That's nonsense to me. I'm sorry. All due respect to Royce. Like, if you're up to the moment, I've watched Russell Westbrook initiate offense in a nuanced way in the regular season. I've watched him initiate offense with nuance before. So when in clutch situations, you just throw that complete um, idea away and just go, I'm just going to take the worst shot possible for my team. That means you're not clutch. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, that don't means embrace you the don't moment. have it. Yeah, he shouldn't be embracing the moment is his problem. He should be embracing like the corner. And just stay in that corner <laughs> and, love, and love that corner because, like, he's doing too much. Like, he was at his best this season when he played an ancillary, secondary, even, like, tertiary role to James Harden. He was, like, a, amazing in that role. That And that is who he has to be now. He needs to be an amazing role player. The problem is, can he think that? Can he, like, accept that change when the moment is going when it's clutch time and he needs to defer. And I do kind of feel like Harden, it's on him in order to tell him off and basically take the ball and say, this is my moment. You need to stay in that role. I don't know. Well, One it, thing it, I want to see. So, so um, in that game six end of the game, it was Harden screening for Westbrook. He gets in the lane, turns it over. Flip that. I want to see Westbrook screening for Harden. So I feel like that way you can minimize Westbrook's bad jump shot if he's a role man. I think that is the adjustment if they're going to make one is to make. But then you got to count on Westbrook to be effective without the ball. Set a good screen. <laughs> like, I mean, this is this is what I'm talking about with Westbrook. It's like all there's a lot of this performative effort with him that, and I get it. It endears him to the prairie, and they still love him to this day, even though he demanded a trade out of town, just like KD did. Even though KD, all he did was leave when his contract was up, but he left the prairie too. But I get that his fake efforting is something that endears him to those people and endears him to a certain group of people. But like, bruh, set a real screen. Dude, stop jumping out on defense and actually concentrate and execute your assignment and help defense. How about that? That's clutch. That's winning basketball. You don't do any of that. You get the ball, take a wild shot, Brick it, airball it. You can't make free throws anymore. Get him out of here, guys. <laughs> Man, <laughs> wow, that turned quickly. The, <laughs> the only thing I want to say in defense of Russ here, who played a pretty terrible game, was he tried to pass it. He just kept passing it out of bounds. He kept passing it to the Thunder. Like th this whole like, did he should he have deferred conversation? I'm like, did we just forget that he had turnover he after it. turnover? Like, if anything. 
he looked completely unsure of himself, like did not trust himself to break down, like break guys down off the dribble. Like he didn't look like anything like Russell Westbrook, except in the ways that was identified, which is kind of bricking in crunch time. Yeah. I mean, he, he did just come back from injury. Yep. And I think that is one thing that does get lost here. It's like, I think everyone has this like natural, like uh reaction where as soon as Russ screws up, they're like, Oh, let's, let's pile on Russ. But I do think like he has at this point, a little bit of an excuse, but at the same time, like they need to figure this out quickly because everything's on the line here. Remember when they won the when he won the MVP that season? Um, and pe- and you know, there's a lot of noise in regular season clutch performance, but OKC was the number one clutch team in the NBA that regular season. Granted, a lot of times you're being clutch against the Knicks. We gonna throw a grain grain of salt on that, but I'm just saying, <laughs> like. They, they were the number one clutch team in the NBA, and a lot of that was Russ orchestrating that, right? It, it wasn't even a lot of it. All of it was Russ by design. It was him orchestrating that, and they were getting favorable outcomes in the clutch in the regular season. So you can't tell me in the playoffs this guy can't figure out how to be smart in clutch situations. I, I just don't buy that. So one thing I'm curious about with all y'all, it really sounds like D'Antoni's probably not coming back to Houston. <laughs> you think? Who would who would coach this team? What makes sense for y'all? Like, who would you bring in to coach Russ and Harden at this point? But see, that's the thing. It's over. It, it's over once they fire D'Antoni. Because there's nobody you can actually bring in to execute this small ball stuff um, when it comes to coaching. And they're going to just essentially break up this team. Tillman Frittata, whatever his name is, uh, he he doesn't have patience to be pay- paying for a team that's not going to matter. I think this team is toast after this season. I think Maury's pro- Maury probably isn't cooked until his contract is up. Because, again, Frittata's so broke, he's not going to pay people who don't work for him. So Maury will probably stay on as a hostage situation, as we've seen since Frittata bought the team. But it's a wrap for this team. So we're recording this before any of the Wednesday games go up. <laughs> So I just want to give Steve a couple alts here just to say, Harden, oh my God, he is so incredible. <laughs> Russell Westbrook really rose to the moment. Uh, Mike Budenholzer, great adjustments. Giannis played an incredible game. So we're covered there. Um, oh, all right, let, let's wrap it here. Wise, my friend, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, man, thanks for having me. This was super fun. Thanks for letting me blab on here. All right, man, uh, f- that's it for us. Uh, we will be back next week for Waz, for me, for Charks. And for Rob and for Steve on production, cleaning things up for us. We'll see you next time. Basketball is very good. Basketball is very good.